So I'll tell you a little story while the ushers are finishing up. A little over 20 years ago, there was a church in England that um, was getting concerned about what uh, their worship music, their worship time had become. And uh, this was a church that, that uh, was influential in its own right in other churches with some of the music they were putting out and so forth. But pastor made a gutsy call to pull the plug on the worship band. Said for the next season of our church life together, there's not going to be any worship band, there's not going to be any worship leaders up front. And instead of being worship consumers, we're going to see if we can't develop ourselves as worship producers. And so the first Sunday or two was pretty awkward, and then people began to just lead out in a song, um, hymn a worship song, and eventually a cappella, and eventually they started singing praises on their own. There was a man in that church who was a songwriter, musician himself, and as the first couple of weeks unfolded, he was catching a glimpse of what God might be up to. And in his bedroom one day, he sat down and he began to write the lyrics to a song that you sang this morning. Coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you. Never, it was just his own, he was just writing it for himself. He never intended for it to be, go anywhere else and became an anthem that was sung literally around the world. As people realize, we can so easily make the music the object. And uh, so I just loved that the, uh, I was going to say band, but the trio led that this morning. What a great, uh, what worship's all about, worshiping uh, God in Jesus Christ. And uh, so uh, we're going to talk more about worship today in, uh, in this series. There was a young married, newly married couple that, uh, we're on their honeymoon, and the second morning that they got up, they got up late. They actually weren't up yet, and the guy says to his, you get up and make us some coffee. And she goes, that's not my job. And he's thinking back to his premarital counseling with Pastor Charlie, and he's thinking, I wonder if I missed something. I... I just remember my mom always made coffee for dad, and I figured that's the way it would go in our house. And he, goes, he said, well, why, why wouldn't you make coffee? She goes, that's your, that's your job, my job. Yeah. She said, that's biblical. He said, what are you talking about? She jumped out of bed. She got her Bible. She opened up the Old Testament, and she showed him. She says, right there it says, Hebrews. She turned a few more pages. See it? Right there. Hebrews. Got back here. Look, there's a whole book. He, that's your job, Bubba. If you didn't get that, talk to your neighbor. The Bible says, if you're a, a married couple, the Bible says that your relationship with your husband, with your wife, is the primary depiction of of the love affair that Christ has for his, with his church. That there's no better testimony to the world. That, I don't know about you, but that puts a huge burden on my shoulders. Because I'm not just now 
only worried about having a happy marriage, a happy relationship with this woman I married, but that this is going to send signals to people I meet and people that know us about Jesus. And so it's so instructional for us in how we think uh, as a married couple, husbands and wives, it's instructional. We learn so much uh, out of the marriage relationship around, about how we should be related to Christ, how we should interact with Christ, how our relationship with him should go. Dr. Dana Fillmore, who is uh, the founder of Strong Marriage Now, he, she is an international internationally known marriage therapist. I think she's been on every television network uh, in the world, a proponent of marriage. She says, time alone together must be in a place where you can make eye contact and talk only with each other for a significant block of uninterrupted time. It occurs anywhere you feel like you can let your guard down and connect. The bottom line is that it is impossible to be in love with someone you're never alone with. The bottom line is that it is impossible to be you're never alone with. This is why some husbands and wives that end up in my office or in Pastor Charlie's office are frustrated in the marriage relationship. It's like we never, we never talk together. We're never alone together. We're busy doing this, that. She does her thing and I do my thing. And we'll tell them, that's not the grounds for a marriage. It is impossible to be in love with someone that you are never alone with. Now that's instructive for us this morning as we think about our worship of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14, this won't be our main text this morning, but I want to touch on this before we get there. It says, the Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he had promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. And then this line, if most translations simply say, for the praise of his glory, which is one of those I call throwaway lines. We read through it, we blow by it, doesn't make any sense to us. We, we think there's something there, but it must not be all that important. But the NLT, I think, uh, breaks it open in a glorious, wonderful, clear-cut, pointed way. He did this. In other words, he saved you, put his spirit in you, if you're a Christian, as a down payment on the inheritance that is to come. He did this so we would pray him. Remember, we've been saying in this series, this is why God made us. Back in Isaiah, the people that I made for my own glory. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God made us to be worshipers, to glorify him, to make much of him. We did this so that we would praise and glorify him. And this is, echo, this is an echo of verse 6 and, four, uh, and 12. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. Verse that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. Sometimes we think only about we've been left here to evangelize the world and we have. But evangelizing the world is part of praising and worshiping our glorious God. So I want us to look at Matthew chapter 6 this morning. That'll be our main text. And here's some things that Jesus has to say about private worship. One of the common complaints that I hear from Christians, and it'd be interesting to poll you this morning and ask you how many of you would say this about yourselves. If you're a Christian, do you feel distant from God? 
today, do you feel distance? Like there's, there's this gap between you and God. I can't, I can't really find him. I can't really connect with him. And it's interesting, we, uh, when we talk with Christians, uh, pastors talk with Christians about that, we they say, do you, do you have a, a, a time that you're with the Lord in the morning, a private worship time? And how often we hear, well, not really. And by our own admission, sometimes we say, I'm, I'm too busy, I'm too distracted, I'm too this, I'm too that. And it shouldn't surprise us then that we feel distant from the Lord. If you didn't spend time with your wife, you would feel distant from her. If you didn't spend time alone with your husband, from him. And the same is true with the God who made us to love him. And if, if I haven't said it before, I want to say it today. Worship is the language of love for the believer. Worship is the language of love for the believer. Not necessarily evangelism, not necessarily going to church, not necessarily getting in the care group. We're the language of love for those of us who know Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us and then we'll dive into some of Matthew 6. Oh God, how great are your riches and your wisdom and your knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand your decisions, your ways. Who of us can know your thoughts? Who of us is smart enough to give you? Or who of us has given you so much that you need to somehow pay back this debt? For everything comes from you. Everything exists by your power and is intended for your glory. This morning we give you all glory forever and ever and ever. For that is what you are worthy of. That is what you are due. And we this morning who hates us, he hates you. He hates any talk of worship about you. And we pray that you would muzzle him so that he can't infect us or influence us or divert us or distract us. We pray that you would bind him. And that instead the Holy Spirit would have the run of the place and have the run of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter at verse five. These are the words of Jesus. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that's all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by, shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. And then your father who sees everything will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on and on as people of other religions do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon, and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need, and forgive us our sins, as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. 
If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your sins. We could have a great message just on that, couldn't we? And when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do. For they try to look miserable and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, it's the only reward that they will ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face, and then no one will notice that you are fasting except your father who knows what you do in private. Father, who sees everything, will reward you. Now, verse 9, that might be um, instructive for us when we think about praying and what's the priority in praying I love that Jesus, he starts out with praise and adoration and the worthiness of his father. But our focus today is not on how to pray, the conversation that usually um, comes out of this text, but rather talk about the things that Jesus said before the Lord's Prayer and after uh, the Lord's Prayer. I want to talk this morning about the pitfalls of public worship, pitfalls of private worship, and the prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T, of private worship. And uh, if you pick up one of the sermon notes uh, I usually have out there, you'll see today that I did a little like the worship team did, very minimal. (laughs) You have a title and the rest you're on your own. And uh, part of that is because as a preacher, um, I I love to be able to uh, engage with you and some people are, I understand, much more you want to write stuff down and get it all so you can go back over uh, through the week. That's fine. But I, I think a lot more resi- realize when we engage, uh, when you listen to something like this and uh, maybe not be distracted by so many notes, but that's a, personal, that's a personal preference. So do as you see fit. First of all, talking about the pitfalls of public worship. Now, If you were here back in April, Pastor Charlie preached a message that I think Keystone desperately needed to hear. Uh, Charlie gave us permission to be more expressive in worship than we are. Uh, We're a bunch of Germans and Scandinavians and people from the old country, and we're afraid to do too much here in front of other people. What will they think? And so Pastor Charlie said, look, if you want to raise both hands, you want to do the charismatic hand raise, that's fine. You want to raise one, do the Baptist hand, or the, or the, I won't give, maybe the Lutheran, on the way, hand raise, just down low, nobody sees it. If you want to do any of that, just go ahead, knock yourself out, enjoy yourself, worship the Lord in spirit and truth. If you want to get on your knees in the aisle, as long as you're not blocking the aisle, uh, here at your chair or down front, you go, you go ahead and do that. As the Lord leads you, feel free to be more expressive. If you get to the end of a song, Shelby Smoker sits right behind me here in the first service. And at the end of a song, you know, he wants to clap. And he goes like this, but nobody joins him. So he's like, I don't want to do that. And I love it when somebody has the guts to go like this because others will join them, uh, join in them. We want you to be able to be expressive here in your worship and yet not feel that you have to worship a certain way. 
Fair enough? And somebody told Pastor Charlie, we need that permission given again and again. And I think he's probably right. So just a word to the wise. We want, we want to give you permission to worship freely. Because it's, it's, it's difficult. We're worried about what people, what people think. What Jesus was addressing in the text, though, was the opposite concern. That people might worship in such a way that focus is not God, but other people. And, and so, for example, I've been in, in services already, uh, conferences, churches, where there are people dancing. Some of you are about to walk out. Just stay seated. If you want to worship that way, that's fine. <laughs> but people are dancing. Men and women are dancing. And I've been in situations where that dancing was, I felt God-glorifying and appropriate. And then there have been other times there was the exact opposite effect. Like, no, that's about you, not the Lord. And I suspect that the differentiation is based on private worship. In other words, if you are really worshiping the Lord on Sunday morning or when the body is gathered together and God is the you have already worshiped privately during the week and your public worship is the outflow or the overflow of your private worship and thus you're not worried about you're not worried about trying to impress people. That was Jesus fear. People would go out in, in the, on the streets of Jerusalem and they would, they would make a big fuss about their piety. And they would say, oh God, they pray out loud and they'd use all the religious language and people would look at them and say, wow, what a spiritual guy, what a spiritual woman. Really holy, I'm impressed. And God says, uh, Jesus says, if you're going to do that, that's the only reward you get. The other people being impressed with you, that's it. When you pray, if you're really worshiping, you should go and do it in private. In private, then your public worship becomes the overflow of that. It's no longer about you. You've met in secret with the Lord, and you've met the Lord. And Jesus said, when you fast, you know, don't put on old ratty clothes or, you know, leave several buttons unbuttoned and... You know, put on your torn sneakers or your torn pants. Oh, I guess torn pants would be new these days, right? Torn in the knees. You buy them that way. And they cost more that way, I hear. Is that true? <laughs> okay. So um, Jesus is saying, don't look like you're a miserable person so that people come up and ask you, brother or sister, you look awful. Did you have a bad week? Are you feeling poorly? What's wrong with you? I'm, I'm fasting. Really? Man, how long have you been fasting? Well, it's about five hours. <laughs> Burger. Don't do that. Comb your hair, wash your face, dress nicely. Why? Because fasting is not for other people. Prayer is not for other people. Even your singing is not for other people. It's for the Lord who is worthy of our worship, right? Worship, worth-ship. He's worthy of it all. Sometimes 
People want to look a certain way in public and be perceived a certain way. Now, if you were to go um, downtown Lancaster and get on your knees and pray there, the things that Jesus was worried about in his day, we wouldn't be worried about today. Because people, people aren't going to be impressed with your piety if you're bowing down on East King Street. They're like, what is wrong with that person? Now, it might be in church. You know, he said this happens in the synagogue problem. I've shared before a story of a man at our church in Michigan where I pastored before here. And I'll call him Frank. Got to the church, and it was a very, uh, very small church, about 60 people when we got there, and, and that was two, after two churches had merged. And right away, Frank, uh, I was exposed to Frank in a variety of ways. He was kind of a dominant figure, especially in the one church. But there, I had this, I had this uh, something that I thought, Something's not right with this guy. Something's off. Do you ever have that happen? Especially where people think this is a really godly person. And in short order, I found that that was the perception in the, in the church, even the combined church. And this was a man who typically spoke out in adult, uh, and who spoke up in congregational meetings. I discovered he was one of the few people in our church who had memorized any scripture. And so he would often share those in public meetings, and of course it made him look really spiritual. Something wasn't right. After I was there about six months or so, I had a number of people come to me and suggest that we should make Frank an elder. Now, God knows we needed it, elders. When I came, there were three elders there, and uh, inside of about three, four months, we were down to one elder. Now that wasn't because of me. Uh, one moved away. And one had just been through the mill with so many things that had gone on in the past. So we needed elders. And it's, you know, brother, brother Frank, shouldn't we have, how about if we have Frank? I'm like, you know, it's difficult to tell people who have a perception of someone that, no, we're not going to, we're not going to ask him. Or, and especially not go into any detail. Uh, but this was, uh, the other elder was in agreement with me about this. So I was there at the church two years. Um, we had made the decision to come back to Lancaster, start Keystone, and uh, announced that to the church about four months before we came back. About a month before we left, Frank's wife showed up in my office. And it wasn't long before she was just in tears. And this was probably one of the most godly women I've ever met. Uh, I mean, she would... Uh, just serve. She loved the Lord. She just had a heart for the Lord. You'd see it in a thousand ways. Tender, uh, loved people, gave of herself. And I found out that day what life was like at home with Frank. Keith, I, I can't tell you how many times I have contemplated leaving him. It was abuse, mostly verbal. She was careful not to let me know too many details. I think she was afraid that I would uh, push for church discipline, which would have been difficult. I was only a few weeks away, away from leaving. Um, and she said, I, I just, God has not given me the freedom to do that. And we prayed together and cried. She left. And this is exactly the kind of thing that Jesus is afraid of where there's a public perception 
that this man, this woman, is really tight with God. And Jesus says, your job is not to make yourself look good. Your job is to worship. Your job is to worship the one who and gave himself for you. These are the pitfalls of public worship that Jesus is afraid about. But in what he is guarding or warning against here, he is, on the other side of the coin, promoting. Pray in private. Fast in private. Read your Bible in private. Get alone with God in private. Now, you might ask, are there any pitfalls to private worship? And I would say, no, absolutely none. But there are pitfalls to private devotions. Everybody know what I mean when I say devotions? Yes? No? You can nod your head up and down. So devotions is usually the label or quiet time, something like that. We use, talk about a time, usually in the morning, where we get alone with God. We have an open Bible, an open heart, and a bended knee. I remember when my daughter was in uh, training for teen missions back in the mid-90s. And uh, they were, this was down in a swamp in Florida. And they would kind of keep each other account, uh, accountable having their morning devotions. Or the leaders would talk to them about it. And they called them, what? Devos, you know, short for devotions. Like, that just sounds almost wicked. I mean, there was something about that that, it's, that seemed not right. I've always uh, called my time with the Lord in the morning a quiet time. Uh, that was something started by the Christian Missionary Alliance Church back in the late 1800s. And then there was a, uh, a pamphlet written about it by InterVarsity, I think, during... And then Billy Graham popularized it in his uh, crusades. He would talk about having a quiet time, getting alone with the Lord, you know. Uh, your Bible and, and uh, reading the Bible and praying. But this devotions thing, I mean, devotion is a, ah, devotion is something, you know, we are devoted to one another. We are devoted to the Lord. When you cut that thing off and say devos, it just sounds, I don't know, there's something about it that I didn't like. The object was to do something on a checklist. And I wonder how many evangelical Christians are still today struggling desperately, trying to make sure they have a time in the morning with the Lord that truth be told, they don't want to have. But they think they should. And it's interesting, you won't find a place where it says, have morning devos. Despite the fact that the I'll touch on this a little later. There's pictures everywhere of the daily nature of meeting with the Lord. The pitfalls that go with this kind of private um, devotional time is that we end up doing something to accomplish something. Something becomes the object. What it should be is that we are going to have a uh, we're going to get together with the Lord so that we could worship him. And we have the Bible out, and we want to pray, and we want to listen to him. 
but it, it kind of becomes the, the calisthenics of our lives. I don't know if you do calisthenics or not, if you uh, do them in your home. I know, I know this boy does. Uh, anybody here like calisthenics, push-ups, sit-ups? I mean, you really like them. Would you raise your hand? I knew you would. Anybody else? The, the, the issue with calisthenics is that we do them for another purpose, right? We do them so that we could either lose weight or get it more in shape. Um, we could look buff. And then people would admire us. We would be more healthy. People would admire the, the, the objectives that we're reaching for. The calisthenics in and of themselves are not the objective. They're not the purpose. It's these other objectives and that should be the way it is with our time in the morning with the Lord that our objective is to meet the Lord and worship him and delight in him and him delight in us I I wonder God's God's he's got he's charge of seven and a half billion people and yet he will stop for you in the morning he will stop for you in the morning he will listen to you and he will talk to you because that's what he does he loves his children and he wants to be worshipped I made them for my glory and I can't tell you how many times in my own history that I have put together this devotional plan All right. now when I get to my study First thing I'm going to do is read four chapters in my reading plan. And then I'm going to get my, out my prayer journal. And what day is this? Okay, this is thir- Thursday. I'm going to pray through Thursday's prayer list. And then I'm going to ask a couple of things for myself. Oh, and right in here I'll have a, I'll have a minute where I do praise God. And I have this... This goes for these number of minutes, and this goes for these number of minutes, and I get done, I'm like, man, I got that right this morning. I did my thing this morning. I did my duty this morning. And I'm, I think back on some of those days, I'm like, I'm not even sure I made it, but I did my duty. Oh, how God longs to sit with you, sister and brother. How he longs to hold your hand and hear you pour out your complaints to him and say, God, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure I can go on. I don't know if I'm going to make it through this. And he will willingly sit there. If you shake your fist, I cannot believe that you did this. Or you're putting me through this. Or you're allowing me to go through this, depending on your theology. I can't believe that you did this 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago. I'm having problems explaining that to my friends. And he will sit with you. And he will listen to you. Love you. And tomorrow morning, he'll look forward to that all over again. If you will just... Run to him. I, I, I'm so convinced. 
so convinced that the enemy takes good things like a packaged quiet time and he uses them against God and against his people. That which should be good, that which should be glorious. I was reading a piece the other week by a, an author by the name of Frank Viola. Some of you have probably read some of his work. And he wrote a piece about rethinking private worship. I don't remember exactly the title. Days like I used to have, you know, where he oh, either had a shortened time with the Lord or, or he failed to have his time with the Lord that morning. And he said, oh, I'd just be racked with guilt. Can you imagine that God would see that as something that's being racked with guilt as opposed to, oh, man, I... I missed the opportunity to be with my Savior this morning. I mean, it'd be like me, Betty and I, and, we're, and something comes up, and we can't have dinner together, and I have a meeting and so forth, and, and I come home and say, honey, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I missed that dinner. I know we're supposed to have five dinners a, a month. And uh, I'll try to make up for this some way. No, I come home and say, I missed being with you. I've missed being with you. And tomorrow night I'm going to clear my schedule. I'm gonna... Some of you know my mom and dad went to retirement home about three weeks ago. Dad has Alzheimer's. He's 91. Mom's 90, and she just couldn't take care of him anymore. They were living with us, but um, there were plenty of times that he didn't remember me, and sometimes he doesn't remember my mom. And she was telling me Friday night that they went out to a, a little area off of the memory unit. She's in, a, she's in person. She goes, sees him every day. And they went out. There's a little patio area and then a, a, an enclosed courtyard where he can walk. And they walked there for a little while. And then they sat down in this patio area. And my dad said to my mom, this is really nice. We don't get to do this very often anymore. And I thought how sweet that is. And because he doesn't always remember her, but for that moment he remembered her. And how often God might think that with me. Oh, this is really nice, Keith. I haven't seen you for a while, or at least you're not. This is the first time you weren't in a hurry for a while. There are some pitfalls of private worship, if we make that thing a thing to be done as opposed to to meet with. What is the profit of private worship? P-R-O-F-I-T, profit of private worship. The number one profit is his glory. I mean, I hope you're getting that message through the series. That's what we're here for. We're here to worship him and to, to make much of him and, and rejoice in him and, and see and savor him as, as worthy and glorious and delightful. Altogether lovely. Is that how you feel about your God? When you read the scripture and you see the majestic things that God has done in the past and then you reflect on the things that God has done in your life, do you get stuck at the things that God has not done for you or the things that he's allowed you to go through or do you move beyond them and say, but then 
Oh, I praise your name, Lord, for you have crowned me with glory and honor as your son and as your, or as your daughter. You have raised me up into the heavenly so that I'm seated with Jesus Christ himself. You've given me a, a wonderful wife. You've given me a wonderful husband and you've blessed me with these children. You've given me a family of faith that there for me at a moment's notice, no matter what, what time of night or day I call them up. You've given me the opportunity to, to use my gifts for you Little though they may be, and you've made much of them. I've got three square meals a day. I don't have to think about where I'm going to find food from. We don't have cholera problems in our neighborhood because we have the water supply and the toilet supply separated. I know that if I get on the phone and my, uh, my best friend is choking and I call an ambulance, they'll be there in minutes. Or the police. God, you have, you have blessed me beyond measure. And there are people all over the world for whom those things aren't true. God, forgive me for missing out on all of the blessings. And truth be told, all you're obligated to do for me would be just wipe me out, destroy me, and send me to hell. That's what I deserve. God, in your grace, in your mercy... You plucked me out of the miry clay and you saved me. You gave me your spirit. His glory. What's the profit of private worship? It is his glory. I will sing to the Lord because he's good to me. But Jesus, it's reward. I don't know what kind of reward he's talking about. Maybe the kind of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's going to be rewards in heaven. But he rewards those who seek him in secret. He rewards those who fast in secret. He rewards those who open the word of God and listen to the Lord God in secret. There's some kind of reward for that. But the sweetest is the fellowship. Listen. If you don't want to go and see the Lord in tomorrow morning, I know I just got put on probation for some of you. If you don't want to go see the Lord, something else is wrong. Set a week or a month or a year of devotionals is not going to solve. What a privilege to fellowship with the Lord in the morning. He talks to me. I talk to him. We might sing. Maybe we won't. I admit my fears, my disappointments. I cry out to him. I might cry. I, 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 might, I, I might just sit and think of that he shared with me that morning. I, I get to do things that I wouldn't do in front of you. I, I get to say things that I wouldn't say in front of you. I, I get to think about things that I might not think about here on a Sunday morning. It's just me and him in private worship, that wonderful fellowship, those moments. John Bunyan said, he who runs from God in the morning will scarcely find him the rest of the day. 
He who runs from God in the morning will scarcely find him the rest of the day. And we look through Scripture and we see this. We see people who seek the Lord. They're daily people. They're not weekly people. They're they're daily people. I I ran into an interesting passage. um, Read through the again. This is about uh, two weeks ago. I don't ever remember reading this. And I must have read through the Pentateuch 50 times in my life. In Deuteronomy 17, the rules for the future king. So this was, this was the back in the days of Moses, long before Israel ever had a king. In verses 18 to 20, it says, And when you get a king someday, make a copy of this law and set it beside him so that he reads the law over and over. How to rule justly. So he knows how to know he's God. What happened when Daniel's enemies set him up with the king, Darius? They didn't like that he was too, they didn't like that Daniel, this Hebrew prisoner of war, this import, had the ear of the king. And so they went to Darius and said, hey, king, you are really an awesome king. Amazing. You are such a wise and good king. We should worship you. How about if we make a decree for the next 30 days, nobody worships, worships any person or any God except you. That sounds like a great idea. Let's write a law. And so they do. And what did Daniel do? He went to his house and he opened the windows facing Jerusalem and three times a day and thanked his God anyway. Daily, daily. You, you, you see this pattern, daily. There's a dailiness to the life with God. Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, this would be at the point of the sermon where I give you some concrete suggestions. Okay, you go home, buy yourself a prayer journal, make sure you have an open Bible, build a nice little Um, prayer room underneath the stairs in your basement. By the way, they are really cool places to make into prayer rooms. You know, you have the stairway going down, you have all that open space under there you're not doing anything with anyway. Put some two-by-fours. Okay, I wasn't going to give you specifics. Pray. uh, do, Do worship praying this amount of time and then do that first. Make sure you do that first. And this, I don't want to do that. Because that, I'm fearful that's more of the same. I, I, I put this package together. I fulfill this duty. And I'll, I want you to love God and run to him because you love God. Jonathan Edwards says, our faith follows our affections. That's where the faith is. Where are your affections, brother, sister? Who do you love? Who do you run to? And I'm going to pray this morning, instead of giving you a a way to put together a a morning um, private worship time, I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer, God, ignite my affections for you. Ignite my affections for you.
And if they're already ignited, praise God. May he take them to the next level. But I want us to just close our eyes and you pray that prayer for yourself and I'll pray that prayer for myself and for you as well so that we are doing private, private worship because we long to sit with him and fellowship with him. And even on a morning where things didn't go the way we planned and we've got two minutes, that those two minutes are sweet because we love the one we're meeting with. That's my prayer, God, that you would reignite our affections for you. As we talked about last week, that the, the gospel in that <laughs> the one who should have rightly condemned us became the one who delivered us. And that that all by itself would ignite our affections to a new degree, to a new level. There are some of us, Lord, I'm convinced, that have some things in our lives that are that our affections cannot be ignited toward you because something's in the way. And I'm assuming that that's the Holy Spirit's word for someone here because that, and pray that the first service. If there's something in the way that this brother or sister would say, God, by your help, I'm going to leave that behind. Or maybe it is that there's something that is so time-consuming. It's not sinful, but it's so time-consuming that my life is just crammed. And I don't even think about private worship because I, my, my, my schedule is just packed. And weeding that needs to be done in one of our lives. Or maybe that's true for several of us. I pray by the Holy Spirit that you would do whatever it takes to ignite a new affection, not just for a day and not for a week, but for a life that we would be on fire for you, not just demblic worship, but enjoying that with you in our private worship. We pray in the good and glorious name of our Savior. Amen.